On today's pod, we have Dr. Sarah Sabatinos. Sarah is a perfect example of an ambassador for science. She is a lover of all things in this world, and her curiosity and creativity is only outmatched by her commitment to collaboration and the people she surrounds herself with in this community. She is truly a class act and a wonderful colleague. So please lean in and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sarah Sabatinos. All right, everybody, welcome back to the pod. Today we have another special guest, Dr. Sarah Sabatinos. Sarah, welcome to the pod. Hi, Brian, thank you. Glad to be here. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Okay, so I am an associate professor now at Ryerson University. I get to teach classes in the biomedical sciences program, like experimental design and uh, genetics courses. I am also the undergraduate program director for biomedical science, but I also have a research program where I look at how and why cells keep dividing even when they're damaged and what role that can play in developing into cancer and also in terms of drug treatments, chemotherapy and other drugs as well. Awesome. We're going to go back on a little bit of your personal story here now. Sure. Did you always know what you wanted to be when you were a kid? No, no, I don't. So think what I did, did you, what did you want to be when you were a kid? I was always interested in science. Something that a lot of people don't know about me is that I had extensive training in music. And when I was in my last two years of high school, I had to choose between if I was going to stay in science or if I was going to go into music. And I chose science, clearly. But it's always been one of those things that when I did go down that path, I no longer had access to, you know, like the instruments that I had played previously. So I feel like I kind of lost that part of my life, unfortunately, but starting to get it back now with a bit more stability and less moving around. What were your instruments? What did you play? So I play piano and harp and flute. Harping. Wow, that would Mm -hmm. be... Yeah, I have a folk harp, actually. Oh, cool. There are some, these are some questions that are coming up a little bit later on too. Okay, so where's hometown for you? Where were you born? I was born in Toronto, but I grew up in Milton, Ontario. So just down the 401, about an hour away. And, in the direction um, of Waterloo. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I grew up in Milton and then I went to Guelph for my Bachelor of Science where I did a BSc in biochemistry. And, and why, then, why, did you, why did you go to Guelph? Just because it was regionally close? Actually, it was because I really liked the sound of the program at Guelph. They had a program there called MPC Squared at the time, which was math, physics, computers, and calculus. There's that. And then there was another one. I can't remember the name of the program, but it was kind of like an interdisciplinary science and arts program. So I was in these two programs to begin with. It was an interesting blend because I wasn't the only person who was in that group. And so I got to do some interesting courses like, what was it? Um, Music, race, and gender was one of the first year courses that I took that was specifically in this program, this interdisciplinary program. So I did that because I was still thinking about music and about how to apply science and music and music and science. That's very cool. So you you did your undergrad at Guelph. What was the next transition in your life? Where did you go next? Then I moved to Toronto. So I had done an undergraduate summer project in a lab at Princess Margaret Hospital. And so I knew the department there pretty well. It's the um, Department of Medical Biophysics at U of T. And I went there for graduate school. So I started off, I reclassified after about two years in the program and stayed on for my PhD. Okay, so you start off in the master. So how would you describe your undergraduate experience in terms yeah. of 
No, that's a great story. I like actually telling other undergrads who I see in my classes about this. So I came out of high school with high grades and doing really well and got into university. And I realized actually too slowly, I didn't realize fast enough just how different university is. And I think it's, a, it's something that a lot of our students, not just our students, but all students at university can run into is that things are different. There's more work and it's the more detailed and emphasis on analysis. So it's very easy to become swamped. And my first year was kind of rocky. You know, I didn't have the super high grades that I had known before and I was, ha I was struggling at the end of my first year. And then I did classes in the summer after my first year. I started off in biophysics, actually, now that I think about it. I was in biophysics to begin with, and I had waited to take this biophysics course and waited, and I was really excited, and I took it, and I didn't enjoy it. And it was really kind of crushing. So I took summer classes. And it's actually crushing because you said this max physics computing yeah. and calculus or whatever, which is one of your draws, and you're like, oh, I don't like any of that, right? Yeah. <laughs> Why am I here? Exactly. And I thought biophysics was going to be like angles and movement and, you know, motion and all this stuff. And it was action potentials and what is it, tetrodotoxin and fugu fish, which is very cool, but it wasn't what I was interested in. So that's a bit of a letdown, honestly. I came out of my second semester and it was, I was kind of sad about that. And then in, uh, I took a summer, I did some classes over the summer. I was working, I also had a job and I, I was doing some classes at night. And I took an astronomy class and that kind of convinced me to come back and try some more science. I considered going into history for a while. I very nearly finished a degree in medieval history, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I really enjoy history. But I also found out I was really good at biochemistry I, and chemistry. So I loved analytical chemistry, biochemistry classes. I took all of them that I could. I was excluded from taking bio and organic chemistry, which is my one regret in my undergrad. I really wanted to do bio and organic. Never got a chance. Uh -huh. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's cool that you, nothing has changed <laughs> since you were an undergrad, where you're interested in so many things and you yeah. are all over the place doing like a, a really cool breadth. And just so that our listeners know, Sarah is one of the busiest people that I know doing all these other things. And we'll get back to that a little bit later <laughs> and how you manage your time effectively or how you set your priorities. Mm. So after your PhD, so yeah. you did your PhD at U of T, what did you do yeah. after that? How'd you get to Ryerson? What were the life steps or key transitions there? Yeah. So that, again, is another transition point, actually. So I finished my PhD and I had another defining moment in grad school. A lot of people do, actually. For any students out there who are in grad school listening or thinking about it, it's not always easy, right? There's highs and lows. And I went through this time where my project just wasn't working and I had no clue what to do. And the reason why is because I was supposed to be making... Um, a mouse model of this gene that was lethal, like you can't survive without it. So there was, there was nothing really I could do to study this aside from, you know, tests and cells and stuff. And when I was reading one day, there was a paper that had just been published and it was in yeast. This, like this yeast I had never heard of before called fission yeast, which is short for Schizosaccharomyces pombi. And everybody knows the traditional yeast that's used in research and baking and brewing and that Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and it's a great model. But this paper was in fission yeast, and it was talking about my protein that I had tried to knock out, and the cells were viable, so they could survive without this protein, but they were messed up. 
and it gave me clues about how to finish my thesis. This relief of just having some idea of what was going on probably affected the way I was thinking about things. But um, when I went looking for a postdoc after I was done grad school, I thought, hey, wouldn't it be great to get another tool that I could study biology with? And so I found a person online who used Vision East, and her name is Professor Susan Forsberg. She's at the University of Southern California now. And I emailed her, and within, it was a crazy amount of time. It was like 15 minutes. I got back a reply saying, thanks for your email. I'm looking into your references. I'll contact you shortly. I was like, whoa. And, and that was the start of my postdoc. So I went to Los Angeles to work in Fisionese as Pombi and study cell cycle and also DNA replication. So very, very cool. Yeah. So anyway, then yeah. how'd you get to Ryerson? What was the transition there? Yeah. Sorry, when did you start at Ryerson? I think it was 2014, right? 2015. Yeah. Oh, 2015. Okay. 2015. Yeah. So I had been in my postdoc for a while and I wasn't really sure what was going to happen, but I think the important thing with postdocing is, is that you can't let it get to you. It's, you know, you don't know what's going to happen, but I was really enjoying what I was doing. And this ad came out for Ryerson that they were looking for somebody who was interested in genetics and molecular genetics and cell biology and stuff. So I applied to the job. And at that point I had applied to a few positions and my mantra was kind of like, well, they're not going to look at me, so it's okay. So I threw in my application and then I got an email back and they said, hey, would you like to do an online interview? And, and then the process started for hiring and then I found out that I had been hired in 2014. And then I started officially in January and I moved to Toronto in May of 2015. Cool. And we are really glad that you are here because you have been one of my favorite people to work with in many different things. Your listener is going to be a pretty general group of people uh, in all sciences. How would you describe what you're doing now at Ryerson in terms of research? So what, we're, what I'm interested in is this idea of genome instability. So if you have DNA that's organized into a genome in your cells. Everybody does, right? All living things. And the idea is that you want to maintain perfect copies of the genome so that you can create proteins and RNA transcripts and, and all the things that a cell needs to survive and you can regulate it properly and adapt to situations. And when I was in my postdoc, I found two things. First of all was that this model POMBI was actually pretty good for mimicking this process where nuclei can, if they're stressed out during specific kinds of cell stress, they have like a, a chromosome that takes off and goes rogue and it's called the micronucleus and that acquires damage. And if it gets sucked back into the parent nucleus, it can create all sorts of damage and mutations. And that creates something called genome instability. And instability is when you no longer have the right regulation. Like you have too much of some genes or DNA sequences, or you're missing some things, or you get fusions and breakpoints. And it's pretty well known that these situations of genome instability trigger cancer. Like it takes time, but we know that that's what happens. We also know it's associated with aging and a couple other pathologies as well. So I'm really interested in that whole process. And then the twist on this is that a lot of people, when they look at if a cell is affected by like a treatment or a drug or a process, you look for death. So if you have a plate of 100 cells and 90 die, 10 survive, you report that you, know, you have 
90% death or 10% survival, right? But the idea is that people tend to look at death. So we report that as what we call the endpoint, right? Okay. I'm interested in the things that survived that treatment. So say they did make it through. You've got 10 colonies out of 100, 10% survived. Have they changed and are they different, right? Because right. the idea that I'm thinking of is, and that we're actually tracking, is that getting through a process that's potentially mutagenic that can create large changes could lead to downstream effects where we don't know. You know, this if you're taking, for example, a chemotherapy drug and you have some cells that survive, they may be in the minority. But if we knew more about them and what they were inclined to do, we could maybe prevent later disease or metastasis or target later drug treatments to actually meet the needs of that cell that's changed. So I like to think about the cells that survive a stress and not simply the death percentage. Very cool. That's, a, that's actually a nice segue, this survival segue to <laughs> some of the other roles you have at Ryerson <laughs> and how busy you are. <laughs> yeah. I don't know and, how and that all I, happened, actually. I think I just say yes. Yeah, I want to work with you. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, yeah, and, 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 no, but there are a lot of cool things that you do. Let's talk, let's talk about teaching and some of the what your philosophy is just briefly because you have that really cool course the experimental design which i think yeah. you were the first one to host that course at least to my memory tell us about what you try to do in your classrooms that's uniquely sarah sabatino's hmm. yeah i got to develop experimental design it's a it's a bit of a funny course because it um it's experimental design but without a lab component it does have a tutorial as part of it where I've adapted some things that are, you know, like dry labs. So we had this one wacky one where you have a balloon and you have a ribbon and can you find out if there's strange interactions between static electricity with different colored balloons and ribbons? And spoiler alert, there are. That's the crazy part. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we've done a bit of that and really it's about how we design experiments, how we think about it, what logic is there and to get them ready for the critical thinking, which is heavy duty reading and considering you know, what happens in a paper in their fourth year. I think that my spin is that I know students are worried about experimental design. They come into that course very anxious about what's going to happen and how they're going to be assessed and that they don't have the answers. You're also the program director right now. So you, you mm -hmm. see a lot of people in the back end of this too. So why, why are they so anxious about this course? What is it about this course that stresses them out? Well, I think that it's, I can't remember the course description right now. It comes across as something that if you were to formally test, it would either be very boring potentially or very difficult and challenging. So I could, you know, ask definition questions about what is, a, you know, define a hypothesis and all this stuff. And I do sometimes, you know, have like small quizzes where I just make sure everybody's on the same page. But I think that people get worried because they're not experts. I think that students are concerned because they feel that they cannot take on a paper, you know? And that's a big thing that I like to challenge is the mindset that they are not able to deal with, you know, I'm using air quotes here, you can't see it, real research, okay? Because <laughs> what I try to stress in that course is that as somebody who is studying science, you will be called on to explain and to talk to people who are not scientists and don't have a science degree about issues. 
And aside from that, when you get to your job eventually, whatever you wind up doing, your boss is not going to ask you to write a 50 page multiple choice every day. You know, it's not, it's just not going to be the way. <laughs> so yeah. thinking about science and what's important, if somebody gives you a report and says, you know, can you assess the literature that led to this? Well, can you do that? You know, what do we value? We can't just parrot back paragraphs from a paper. What are they actually saying? And can you describe that in a way that makes sense to a person who's not in science? Do you think it has something to do with it being dynamic and having a lack of structure based on what the courses that they've had previously? Like, do students need the, something to be, well, science students, they need to be hard and fixed in that regard so that they, you know, I can study and I'll learn it and I can be tested on it. Where here it's going to be, you're evaluating the process that I'm going through as opposed to my knowledge on a subject that I can't really prepare for. I just have to kind of be good, right? Do you know what I mean? Like, is there something oh, yeah. in? Yeah. No, definitely. I think that you're, you're tapping into a, a common fear there um, that I've actually heard people express. And so I do have some of that, right? I want to make sure that people feel comfortable and that they can show success in the ways that they know. But also I'm trying to push the boundaries in terms of the skill learning that they're developing things that maybe aren't as tangible, you know, as like a, a score on a paper. What I love about this course is that it really does focus on transferable skill development, right? Like that to me is the, the entire nature of the course focuses in that direction in my mind. And so what would you say are not necessarily from this course, but just generally, what do you think are the most important transferable skills that every student should have when they leave Ryerson? I think they should be able to describe things, scientific, you know, principles or mechanisms or, you know, they should be able to describe what they're interested in clearly and cleanly to different audiences. So somebody who is a peer who has university training in this topic, but also to a family member who doesn't have, you know, training. And actually, I had a student who posted on the D2L shell, so uh, just with the recent events, and a student posted and said how difficult they were finding things um, because not only did they have to explain what was going on with COVID-19 to their family members, but they had to translate it into another language. <laughs> and I know that there's not just one student who's in that situation, there's multiple students. And they are, and this is the thing is, that, you know, I, I, I talk to them and I say, you are ambassadors for science at some level. So not only are you, do you need to explain things, so that would be skill number one, but second of all, you need to have some way of knowing if it's good information. And that's another critical skill too, is that kind of critical analysis and feeling that you have a role to play. Being a scientist and being in science is not just about memorizing facts, right? And writing them down in the moment on an exam. It's about knowing the information in a way that you could then question nicely, and say, okay, this fits in with something else I learned before, or this is really out of my wheelhouse. I have never heard of this before. I want to know if this is, if this fits with my worldview, right? And what steps would I take there? Yeah. And one of the things that you will have heard me say this too, I get frustrated by this. We often test on information, but we don't test on knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Like the ability to apply things is much different than 
than having a factoid available to you, right? And I yeah. find that that's exactly what you say. I completely agree. Like these communications to a wide group, being an ambassador and being able to critically break down information, especially in the age of information, is so important for all students as they leave Ryerson. If we just switch gears a little bit here, what do you like best about your job? I like interacting with people. And I think actually that that's what leads to a lot of the collaborations and the things that I do in the community is that I really like to interact with people. And in some way, this job is a gift to say you're doing what you love and you get to choose who you're going to work with. And it's really, like I say, it's a gift to be able to do that, to be able to do research into things that I'm passionate about and to meet a lot of really cool people with different life experiences. I agree. There's, and I, I get to do this podcast. And I get to learn all about them. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> would, you, would, you, would you say you're an introvert or an extrovert? I am. Well, that's interesting because I think I, myself, when I am at home, at home, I am an introvert. You know, I need that quiet time to kind of decompress, to just be quiet and deal with a few people. But when I am in my job, right, and, and I'm not saying that they're two separate things. Like the Sarah that you see at Ryerson is the same Sarah. It's just I can't be on and I can't be extroverted all the time. <laughs> so, you know, I need that quiet time to kind of reflect. Um, but, you do, but you do draw strength from others in terms of the interaction, the human interaction. And, and you're right, everyone, every, everyone needs that moment, that bliss. Okay, we'll come back to that in the rapid fire. What do you like least about your job? I think there's not enough time. There's so many good things that can be done. So many good questions. There's so many people that I would like to help, you know, in whatever way I can or spend time. You know, I feel like maybe I don't spend enough time sometimes in the lab. I've been trying to spend, you know, make sure that there's time to partition in that, but it's a delicate balance. And so the time management is really really tough i was just thinking what would sarah be like if time wasn't a thing <laughs> like, <laughs> she, she would be an expert in everything she literally would she would be playing music while overseeing a reaction in the lab no i could just it was it's fantastic okay so what inspires you the most about your job I, I like i said i think i just and i don't want to be a broken record there sorry <laughs> actually there no, are no right. records anymore are there it's i don't want to be a broken mp3 <laughs> <laughs> which which is essentially exactly what we are when we exactly. pause it. <laughs> hey, um, hey yeah. did you hear that? Is my is my MP3 broke? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And records are making a comeback-ish. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what it's where do I draw inspiration? I think it's knowing, actually, it's knowing how special the opportunity is and feeling like I could make a difference. You know, like, I don't, I never expect to win awards or to, you know, really set the world, the, the saying, set the world on fire with whatever I've done. But I do feel like I can contribute and make a difference on multiple levels in my job. You know, like if it's helping a student to get a form signed for the UPD work, or if it's, you know, reassuring the class that, you know, hang in here with me, I know I know you're struggling with the idea that this class is about new things, but trust me, you know, and that feeling of trust and also with the research feeling that, you know, we're doing something different and thinking about things differently. And I have great collaborators and maybe hopefully, you know, I try to push it so that we can have an impact and we can 
do things that are different and meaningful on a larger scale. That's excellent. I know exactly what you mean. I don't think I could have said it any better. You want to make impact and you don't need to, you don't need to get a hero cookie for doing it. You just want, you just, you just want to do it. That's awesome. All right, good. Let's go to our lighthearted rapid fire stuff now. Okay. Where we get to know a little bit about you. And I pose the same questions to all of my biosketch people. Okay. So you can always listen on some of their answers too. Okay. All right. So you may have already answered this one, but hopefully you can come up with a new one. What factoid do my colleagues know least about me? And of course, it has to be something that you're willing to share. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. I, mean, I, I want everything to be candid, but I want you to be comfortable. Right. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> okay. So we'll, we'll go to music, but something a little different. So the hiring committee actually knew that I used to, that I was considering going into music, but I listened to a wide variety of music that a lot of people wouldn't peg I, you know, me as listening to. Um, so my favorite things to listen to are, I really like um, French Baroque music. I like medieval music. I like heavy metal. And I like, you know, some of the different forms of like, well, heavy metal, basically, you know. Wow. Yeah. I wouldn't have guessed you as a, as a heavy metal. And then the French Baroque thing makes sense with heavy metal. Yeah. I could see that. <laughs> right. It was kind of, it was kind of like heavy metal of its time, right? In a lot, in many yeah. Regards. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, I, I, Metal is really cool because it's a very, um, you know, it's a very passionate art form in a sense. Yeah. Have you ever tried playing the uh, the harp, the folk harp, like a metal <laughs> instrument? Have you ever have you ever done like a Metallica song or anything like that? Have you ever tried to replay one? So a friend of mine is in a punk band and he wanted to jam at one point, but we never got around to doing that. So yeah, that'd be fun. Oh. <laughs> I'm seeing business opportunity here. We could do right? like a like a faculty of science event with all these people with all these awesome skills and then we could charge a couple bucks and all money goes to charity around christmas time Ooh, Wait, is it going to be a couple bucks to get us to stop playing <laughs> maybe <laughs> <laughs> i guess you could always charge an entry and then charge an exit right? <laughs> exactly <laughs> okay what is your favorite food I, you know what, it's, it's much like uh, working and stuff like that. I like a bunch of different foods. I'm famously known in my family for liking salad, which is <laughs> the most boring thing, but I love a good salad. <laughs> what, would, what would be the key ingredient? So my dad used to say that you, it, it's not a salad unless it has five different things in it. Otherwise, it's just rabbit food. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> so, so what key thing, like huh. not lettuce or tomatoes or whatever, what key thing in your salad do you like to always have? I really like something that's, you know, like it's got a combination of flavors. So either chickpeas or lentils and maybe some, some kind of protein. Yeah. I really like a mixture of the protein where you get everything, you get all of your basic food groups in there. So yeah. it's a hearty salad, whatever, like it doesn't necessarily have to be meaty, but it, it's a hearty sort of mixture yeah. of different things. When I was in Los Angeles, we used to get this one all the time called the, we called it the shao because it was lamb and beef. So it was sheep and cow, the shao. <laughs> and so that, that to me, when I think of my favorite salad, it is the shao salad that was, you know, it had chickpea, it had fried chickpeas and it had this amazing tzatziki style dressing and oh, hummus. Oh, it was amazing. Oh, it does sound good. Now, now I'm getting hungry. It's really good. I just yeah. ate lunch. Uh, okay, so, so what's your favorite beverage? Uh, again, there's lots that I like. Uh, so I drink water most of the time. I love coffee, actually. And I use coffee a lot in experimental design as um, 
something to talk about, you know, because of caffeine and all these effects. And I use it in part because I really love coffee and I love to make coffee in the morning. So I would have to say coffee. Yeah. Coffee is a winner. I totally understand that. In fact, uh, a really good experimental design project idea, if you haven't come up with this yet, is so, you know, the Maxwell House, good to the last drop, right? Yep. Is coffee really as good to the last drop? And design Absolutely. an experiment that would test that. Anyway. That'd be good. All right. What is your favorite color? Purple. Purple. Nice. That was mm -hmm. my mom's favorite color. Complete yeah. the sentence. If I was not a professor at Ryerson, I would yeah. like to be. So you get to complete that huh. sentence. Uh, probably a pianist. Pianist, like professionally? Yeah. A musician. Yeah. That'd be cool. Was something in the top 10 of your bucket list. Burgess Shale hike. What? Say that again. Yeah. Burgess? Going to the Burgess Shale in Yoho Park and going to the famous, the very first quarry called the Walcott Quarry. And what is it, what draws you to that particular thing? So my daughter is a huge fan of these creatures that came from the Cambrian era. So that, uh, that for me would be amazing. You could just leave her in that quarry. <laughs> no, and do no. Her <laughs> no, no, the hike, the hike up, the hike back. It's a massive I'm, hike. <laughs> I'm just kidding. For yeah. those people who don't know, Maddie is uh, an aspiring scientist, one of the brightest, what, how old Seven is she? now, seven, but yeah. Seven, yeah. seven yeah. year old. And um, so yes, she's big on dinosaurs right now, especially that era of prehistory, I guess, mm -hmm. black weird thing. Anyway. So we're not leaving her in the in the quarry. Uh, oh, it was a light no. joke. Yeah. <laughs> no, no harm has come to anybody during this podcast. Yeah, you can cut that part out, okay? <laughs> yeah. So what is what did, would you say is your greatest achievement so far? My daughter. And that was a great segue that I just provided. <laughs> <laughs> what was your greatest failure so far? So I try to get along with everybody and and not let things bother me. And it's you know, I think back on relationships where I maybe wasn't quite as, as adaptive and adaptable in terms of my thinking. And, and I just, I really do try to get along with people because I think that everybody has something to offer. And if we don't speak the same language, it's okay. We just have to try harder. You know what I mean? So I, I feel like anytime you can't connect with somebody, it's a missed opportunity. I agree. And that's there, not, a, no... I know that's not the biggest failure, but it's, it's kind of, you know, it's more, I reflect on that, you know, if I have failed to communicate in a way that's effective, then that adds into the pile. Or if you don't include people in your list that, that don't help you check your blind spots, right? Like yeah. surrounding yourself by people who think like you is always just a, a, yeah. a recipe for disaster because you don't actually get that perspective. Uh, to exactly. get the the real truth, right? Because the real yeah. truth is often somewhere between ours and someone else's. Yeah. So what are you most grateful for? I, I am very grateful to be where I am, to have been given the chance to have my own lab, to have funding and a space and people who want to work with me. And that all happened because the hiring committee said, oh, hey, would you like to, would you like to take this job? And it opened up a bunch of doors. Um, like, so I grew up in Southern Ontario and this is where family is largely. And so it was a life changer from that point of view. Very few people in academia get to come home. Yeah, we have enormous privilege and, and to, to think when you think about applying for these jobs now, it's really like rolling dice and somehow yeah. your number came up and we, you know, we're on hiring committees. So we've seen the quality of the people that are coming in behind us, at least on paper. So uh, yeah. it is a competitive job to get to. And, and certainly 
luck or fortune has some sort of role to play. Yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, I think about that a lot, actually. You know, it's like, wow, how lucky am I, right? And, and you can't take that for granted. And, that, and I think that's the key, right? As long as you don't take it for granted and you continue yeah. to, to be a servant and, and try to make that impact that you talked about earlier, then we're off yeah. to doing great things. So who is or was your favorite role model? So my parents, you know, I think that they, they're extremely, they are extremely tolerant from the point of view of, uh, they see the good in people and they try to make that happen. So they were all about opportunity and access, you know, as much as they could. They would make sure that, you know, we went to the parks to run around and we could find things and we could dig up rocks and, um, and you know, they, they saved and struggled so that I would have the opportunity to do things that was interesting to me. And, and for that reason, they are my role models. And then also, I, I, I'm going to add an addendum on there because my scientific parent, my postdoc advisor, she also taught me a lot about just access for people, you know, giving opportunity, believing the best in people and, and honest communication knowing that it's okay to fail, you know, so those three people, my mom, my dad, and, and Susan were so important in my life. And that was Dr. Susan Forsberg who got back to you in 15 minutes. So being responsive yeah. is certainly exactly. a, skill, a skill that you yeah. have done well to keep as well. So what concerns you the most, like thinking about the future and not necessarily our current future, but just generally, what are the things that concern you the most? I'm concerned that we have a lot of influences coming in from technology all the time and that there's so much on our plates because we have access to so much, you know, streaming content and our phones are on and, and it's expected kind of that you're going to be on and monitoring things. I'm concerned that that is going to limit creativity in the long term and that we have great resources, but we also don't have the selectivity to choose, you know, or maybe it's not, maybe we do, right? And, and then my concern is completely unwarranted, but I, I worry that there's so much on people's plates and there's so much access to additional things. You know, how do you even pick a paper these days? You go to PubMed or a journal and there's so many papers that are being published all the time. It's really difficult to narrow down and to think deeply about things. So I think that harnessing the extent information and and fun that we have access to you know is really important that's a really good point i think that the need to be responsive all the time really is the opposite of creativity right yeah. <laughs> because creativity needs that alone time that you time that identifying problem time so yeah. that's a good one what is spot in the world do you most like traveling to so someplace you've already been I really like Southern Ontario. <laughs> so I love to travel around, um, go camping, car camping, which is, I guess some people call it glamping. So what, what is your favorite park to go camping to then? Oh, I can't give away my favorite park. It's the best park in the world. Yeah, but I've been to all of them. So and it's just me and you <laughs> in this conversation. A Wenda is a favorite park for camping. I love Awenda and it's so hard to get to that. I mean, it's not very far the way the crow flies, but it seems yeah. like you're on back back roads forever oh, yeah. while you're doing right? it. Yeah. And then I just went for the first time last fall, beautiful trees, massive, mm -hmm. massive trees, but that isn't my favorite. My favorite is actually the pinery. So if you ever get a oh. chance to go on the, on the shore of Lake Huron, mm -hmm. the pinery provincial park is one of my favorites. And I've I also kind of thought, 
mm. fell in love with Arrow Arrowhead. No, Arrowhead. Mm -hmm. Is that it? Okay. Somewhere provincial park just north of Huntsville in that area. Also okay. really cool, cool area. Yeah. So there's lots of great. Don't worry, yours yours is safe. I think Alinda <laughs> is is gonna be fine. No, it's all um, good. And if anybody is listening to this, it's a marvelous park. Absolutely fantastic. It is. It really is. And it has ruins too, right? It has those little ruins on one of those hiking trails. I remember like an old farmstead or something, if mm. I remember correctly. Anyway, I thought yeah. that was cool. For, it's just kind of interesting because yeah, the, the history of farming is nestled in, but it's so overgrown with trees. You wouldn't think that they would yeah. ever, you know. Yeah. So what is your most productive time of day? I think it should be morning. I should be most productive in the morning because I get up, I make coffee, I enjoy making coffee, you know, so that should be the time. But usually I don't have that much time to spend. So I end up doing most of my work and are, am actually most productive at night. <laughs> Late. Fair enough. Yeah. And what is your favorite hobby? At the moment, I really like sewing and needlepoint. I don't do a lot of it. I made a Halloween costume last year and I was like, this is the best ever. And I haven't done anything since. Oh, I, I sewed a mask, actually. Oh. <laughs> I've sewn two masks, and they look awful, but they're functional, maybe. Um, <laughs> functional, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> Apparently, they're as good. But uh, yeah, so that, and also, yeah, needlepoint is kind of fun. But again, I don't, I don't really, I don't get a chance to do much of that. Fair enough. I probably should try to do more. We, oh, hiking. We will get hiking. Yep. That is the thing like I do all the time, hiking, yeah. Excellent. Did you figure out who the famous person was you'd like to go for dinner with yet? So I think I remember reading the um, Mary Curie's autobiography when I was uh, younger. And she had a really interesting, you know, childhood, formative years, like just in terms of tenacity, keeping going and, and, and the discoveries that she made. So, yeah, I would say Mary Curie. That's very curious. No. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So what piece of advice would you give your second year self? One piece of advice. Oh, do the reading and keep up with the course. <laughs> right? It's not read so hard. <laughs> exactly. But it is. I mean, in the time, uh, yeah. Read before you go to class. It's a good idea. And then just yeah. keep up with things as much as you can. Uh, and and um, make notes. Oh yeah. Notes on note cards. I don't think anything... I think that like the stuff, the note taking in class on laptops and what we do with PowerPoints, I'm really trying to get away from PowerPoint slides. I understand why they're great as a resource for students and that's why I keep doing it. But I think that that, that writing, when you're in class and you physically write and you're listening and then you repeat things back is so important for memory skills and memory building. Yeah, and, and I think there's a, a psychology study that says that adult learners post-puberty must write things down in order to remember them. Like that's yeah. actually the only way that we can, that or the most effective way, regardless of who you are. Mm. Okay. For our ask and answered question, the question that somebody posed, a student posed is how do you deal with fear? What kind of fear? <laughs> I don't know. Something that's terrifying. Oh my God. That's the feeling. Okay. Interesting. So actually I find that getting up in front of a new class, I find that first month of getting into a new class, especially the big one, right? The experimental design is mildly, uh, you know, upsetting, right? It's difficult. And I think the thing to remember is that you belong. And the same thing, if you have to get up and give a talk in front of an audience, right? Uh, you're giving a talk at a huge conference and all the big names in the field are there and you know 
that they don't agree with you. And I've done that before, you know, or they, they want to ask you really tough questions. The way you deal with that is remember that you have a place, you are there and, and, and to not dig in your heels in terms of being stubborn, but ground yourself to remind that, you know, I, I try to remind myself that this is what I am supposed to be doing. I can do it. I'm going to make it through, you know, so it's a different kind of fear than, you know, abject terror for one's um, <laughs> sense of being, you know what I mean? Like we're, yeah. this is not, you know, like a survival kind moment. of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, exactly. But more just in terms of having to do things that are uncomfortable and stage fright and things like that. It's, it, it's just tapping into that part of you and finding the confidence and then realizing that that is, it's first of all, you have a job to do, but second of all, you know, you, you are good at it. You are developing and it's okay to have hiccups on the way. Yeah, I think that's awesome advice. And it would be very good advice to yourself if you were actually a pianist, <laughs> a concert <laughs> <Yeah>. pianist. Because <laughs> I imagine yeah. those first few notes are gonna be a little, a little shaky and then you could get <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Let's uh, wrap up, just talk about this uh, COVID section and the COVID situation that we're currently in. What has been your biggest challenge so far in this crisis or pandemic? Time. So I found that, you know, we, we are at home, we are distant, but we are having as many meetings and as many deliverables as we were previously. And it's very difficult to keep up. Plus there's additional, you know, it's, it's not optimal situation working from home. And I like to joke that, you know, so I'm, I'm now also teaching. <laughs> I really appreciate what primary school teachers do. They do a fantastic job, <laughs> you know, the pros. And, and so it's, it, the time crunch is real. And I think productivity, we have to think of it differently. It's not, you know, I'm going to write five papers. It's, I am going to get the things done that I have to get done, stay healthy, make sure I get exercise, you know, and, and stay well, despite yeah, I, all the I pressures. Agree. One day at a time, right? And yeah. I think that sort of, that's leads to my next question, which what are your strategies for coping? Which Yeah, I agree. I like one day at a time. One of the things that a lot of people were saying is that they, they need to find ways to extract themselves or stay aside from other people. And they've formalized like their whole home setting to, to either like a desk in the basement or if they have those things available yeah. to them to try to create spaces where they feel like they're at work or committed to work. Yeah. But I also agree that, that with, with no weekends anymore, we're on a seven day week. So the things right. that could have been done over, over five days, or you just spread over seven days and normalize each of those days, which I find quite helpful actually, in terms of getting things done, because you don't have to stress if you didn't complete your Monday tasks because you still have other days, right? This is true. You know, and I find that people are more forgiving right now too. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not that people weren't before, but that there seems to be more tolerance for, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I get it. No worries, when you can. <laughs> yeah, I think people are certainly more understanding because they're all going through it now. So yeah. even if you have a different home life, you, you have challenge, the same challenges in terms of yeah. the normal normality of it all. What has been your uh, silver lining in this pandemic? I'd say it's, it's kind of having a chance to reconnect. You know, I, I think that when we're on campus and when we're doing the same stuff every day, we don't have the same ability to, like there are more meetings, 
right? We have more ability to have more meetings now, and we have to be careful to make space for not meetings, but it's kind of nice to reconnect with people, to use the phone. I remember a phone call, right? We had it recently, we were talking on the phone. It was nice not to have a Zoom meeting, but to, I think the gratitude is really important. So the sense of this is very different, it's not normal, right? But grateful for what we have and the, you know, the, the tolerance that people are showing. I think the outbursts of compassion that you see, because it is a really difficult time. And so we have to be grateful for what we have while also, you know, maintaining the fairly strict rules that are there to keep us safe. Yeah. I would, I would agree. I think a lot of community spirit has sort of come yeah. out of this and it's a different kind of spirit, but it's still, the, the, it has that same sort of a feeling. Yeah. We could do this all day and uh, <laughs> we might do this again very soon, but it's, I just want to thank you for joining us on the pod today because you are one of my favorite people to talk to about so many different things. I find that your perspective is unique and I think I know why now because of the background and the, and the vast exposure you have. But thank you again for uh, spending your, your, your hour with us and look forward to seeing you when we can see you face to face. Thanks, Brian. You are one of my favorite people to talk to as well. Thanks for doing this and um, everybody stay well, stay healthy and stay happy. Excellent. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Brian.